X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, December the 16th. Today, back in the day, December 16th, 1933, workers at the Puget Sound Navy Yard launched the USS Astoria. The Navy ship had a crew of 900 sailors. In 1941, after the Japanese military attacked Pearl Harbor, the USS Astoria was deployed to the Pacific as part of a large fleet. It participated in the Battle of Coral Sea, the Battle of Midway, two major battles in the Pacific theater. Sadly, on August 9, 1942, the USS Astoria was gunned down by the Japanese military. The wreck of that ship lies under the waves of the Iron Bottom Sound in the Pacific Ocean. Today, back in the day, December 16, 1950, Shirley Temple retired from film. Most people remember Shirley Temple as the bright-eyed, curly-haired girl who rocketed to fame during the Great Depression. A worldwide starlet who inspired dolls and soft drinks, but in the second half of her life, she took on a new career path. It started in 1950 when she retired from film at the age of 21. That same year, she met conservative elite Charles Alden Black, a Navy intelligence officer and a chairman-to-be of PG&E. The two got married by the end of the year. In this new relationship, she became a fundraiser for the Republican Party, even campaigned for Richard Nixon. For the next four Republican presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Bush the Elder, Shirley Temple acted as diplomat to various countries. Bill Clinton awarded her Kennedy Center honors for her years in diplomatic service. When asked about American audiences, whether it was entertainment or government, she said succinctly in one interview, politicians are actors too, don't you think? Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll have an interview with Alex Frayne from Eater PDX and what's happening in the local restaurant scene and a bonus segment from Kira Lindenberg and Christine Alexander on the COVID vaccine. X-ray. And it is time for today's quick six local rundown. After several weeks of uncertainty, Governor Kate Brown has indeed called for a third special session next Monday. The session will last for just one day and will require lawmakers to head to Salem in person. Of course, this is at a time when coronavirus cases are surging. There had been speculation of a potential catastrophic session, the first we'd ever had. That would have allowed legislators to meet virtually. But Republicans voiced concerns about Democrats abusing their majority. Governor Brown has offered little detail about the bills that lawmakers will tackle in their single-day session. She did say that $800 million in additional relief will be on the table. House Democrats have said that four particular bills will likely be taken up. Those include $200 million in housing relief, a provision to legalize to-go cocktails, drink it up, Johnny, protections for schools against COVID-related lawsuits, and a transfer of $600 million in state emergency funds. Along with millions in relief for landlords and tenants, lawmakers are also expected to discuss an extension of the state's eviction moratorium. The path for that proposal, though, through the Oregon Senate remains treacherous. In fact, the only bill expected to receive bipartisan support is the transfer of the emergency funds. That'll free up millions of dollars for use when lawmakers are not in session. Those funds will help cover the cost of contact tracing and distributing the vaccine. It's time for your daily dose of data. Once again, Oregon reached a new high in single-day deaths related to COVID-19. Yesterday, OHA reported 54 deaths linked to the coronavirus, bringing Oregon's death toll to 1,214. They also reported 1,129 new cases of the virus, which brings the state's total to 96,092. Of those cases, Multnomah County reported 215, Clackamas County reported 128, and Washington County reported 89. The new record comes on the heels of Oregon's first shipment of coronavirus vaccines. Kaiser Permanente and OHU received their first boxes yesterday, 
containing about 975 doses each. Due to their large freezer capacity, Kaiser will be acting as a leading distribution site for the vaccine. Currently, they can store about 200,000 doses at cold enough temperatures. Both providers plan to start vaccinating their frontline workers later this week. And in other COVID news, yesterday, Governor Brown classified all of the Oregon coast under extreme risk. The classification will bring added restrictions to those counties, which go into effect this Friday. Casey Jama received the most votes in the nomination process for the open Oregon Senate seat left open now by Senator Shamia Fagan, who's heading to the Secretary of State's office. Casey Jama got 64 percent of the vote among the four leading candidates. Adrian Enghaus, a nurse and the former president of the Oregon Federation of Nurses, got 20 percent. Candy Emmons, a Democratic Party activist, got 11 percent. Jeff Reardon, who endorsed Casey Jama, still got some votes. Now the choice goes on to the county commission, a combination of Multnomah County and Clackamas County. If they follow the will of the Democratic Party precinct committee people, that's where those percentages came from, then Casey Jama will be heading to the Oregon Senate. And that'll add an advocate for racial justice and campaign finance reform, among other issues, of course, to that body. Wilson High School's new name has been narrowed to a list of history-making black women. Wilson is one of the multiple schools getting a name change due to the racist heritage of their namesakes. In this case, activists have pointed out that Woodrow Wilson was not only a segregationist, but also an ally of the KKK. After beginning the name change process in September, five possible names are now being put to the community, and all of them are notable black women. These include Harriet Wilson, Ida B. Wells, and Sojourner Truth, as well as two Oregonians, Mercedes Diaz and Beatrice Moreau Kennedy. Mercedes Diaz was the first black woman to practice law in Oregon and eventually served as a district court judge. Beatrice Moreau Kennedy on the other hand, co-founded Portland's NAACP and in 1930 served as the editor of The Advocate, Oregon's largest black newspaper. New job numbers are showing a decline in growth as jobless claims are spiking. The Oregon Employment Department has released new data from November. It shows Oregon's jobless rate falling for the seventh straight month. At 6% unemployment, our unemployment is now below the national average of 6.7 at its lowest point since it peaked in March. However, the numbers also are showing a decline in recovery overall. In October, Oregon added around 9,800 jobs. In November, that number shrank to 4,200. The decline presumably reflects in part the shutdown implemented by Governor Brown. In response to the drastic spikes in COVID-19 cases, the impacts of that shutdown might not be fully captured in November's data. And the Employment Department projects that some 70,000 Oregonians could lose their benefits next week. That's when two federal programs expire on the 26th. Good news is the Gateway Green Bike Park has reopened for quarantined East Portlanders. Sandwiched between I-205 and I-84, the Gateway Green is Portland's first and only mountain bike park. Activists have been working for years to open the 25-acre space for recreation, And in that time, the park has been through two closures for major renovations. With Phase 2 now finished at a cost of $5.75 million, bikers can enjoy new trails, a 600-foot pump track, and an adaptive bike trail for riders with disabilities. And for non-bikers, new open spaces are ready for picnics. But a note before you head out, the new bathrooms won't be open for a little bit longer. A judge has ordered a prisoner's release after finding Oregon's Department of Corrections in contempt. Anthony White was given a 19-year sentence in 2014 for a string of robberies and burglaries in Oregon. 
Those charges amounted to a Measure 11 sentence for White that comes with a mandatory minimum sentence and prohibits early release. However, during one attempted robbery, White was shot by an armored truck employee, left his left leg paralyzed. Since being incarcerated, White's medical care for that paralysis had been the subject of numerous court hearings. And yesterday, Umatilla County Judge Robert Collins found the Department of Corrections in contempt for treatment he called inhumane. Collins had previously ordered White to be seen by a pain management specialist. The doctor later recommended a series of medications for White, but the state failed to follow those instructions, a decision that left White in intense physical pain for months. Judge Collins didn't mince words during his ruling. Here's the quote. If he's not going to be able to get treatment appropriately from the Department of Corrections, I'm not going to make him suffer a day longer than I have to. As a result, Collins made the unprecedented call to release Collins early, a first in Oregon, according to White's lawyer. He also found the Department of Corrections in contempt, another first in Oregon. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up... Christine Alexander speaks with Alex Frain of Eater PDX. He talks about some of the recent burglaries Portland restaurants have been experiencing, as well as what the upcoming holiday season will look like for the food industry. Here are Alex and Christine. I'm Christine Alexander. Joining me now from Eater PDX, Alex Frain. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. So um, the beginning of the pandemic marked a rise in hardship on, on a lot of different levels. Portland's food scene, no exception. One way it's apparent there was an uptick in, uh, you know, we've talked about restaurants closing or their businesses, their, their business being greatly diminished, but we haven't talked too much about the, the burglary and vandalism of Portland's restaurants. Alex Frayne, uh, can you give us the latest news in this continuing trend? Sure. And I, I'm um, a little hesitant to call it a trend because I, I don't know the numbers for certain. Um, from my interpretation, there's definitely been an uptick in burglaries and robberies and vandalisms of restaurants. Uh, but I, I haven't confirmed that there is actually like a steady increase or anything like that. But it certainly seems like it. Mm, okay. um, but as far as the more recent one, this last weekend saw a pretty dramatic rash of burglaries for food carts around town, actually. And what do they steal so, when they go into these food carts? What? Um, that's kind of a, the tragic thing about it, or um, kind of sadly, or sadly funny thing about it, is that they don't steal very much, because most people don't have very much on hand in food carts. Most food cart owners know better than to leave important and expensive belongings in their cart, because they are so vulnerable to to burglaries. So, you know, petty cash, uh, iPads, if they're there. Um, I talked to one person who had their phone stolen. Um, but for the most part, the real problem isn't in the theft so much as it is the break-in. Uh, because in order to do, at least this last weekend, in order to break into these many food carts, I think it was over, it was at least a dozen, probably closer to two dozen, wow. in three different pods that I can tell, maybe more, um, across town. And most of them, how they... Uh, how they were burglarized was whoever was doing it was probably using a crowbar or some sort of prying bar and wrenching doors off their hinges practically. Uh, in one case, a person had a top locking door and the perpetrator, whoever they were, actually bent the door out from the bottom, practically bending the door in half and then crawled in. Whoa. And then that person also didn't really get anything from that cart, but they did you know, pretty catastrophic damage to their door. There's not really any way to you know, quickly fix that or anything. Right. That's what I was going to say. So the re- not only what's stolen, but now these these costly repairs. Exactly. Yeah, it's really mostly that. Um, and uh, 
course, you're also losing a, a day of business usually because you have to do the repairs. You can't operate with your door off of its hinges. Um, and all this is happening in the wintertime, which is um, Portland food carts are in a unique position in the pandemic. We have written about that a bit at Eater, that they're able to weather some of these uh, dramatic shifts a little easier than a lot of brick and mortars are. Uh, for one thing, their overhead is much, much lower. You, you know, they're not paying foot foot rent. Um, they're not paying for all the amenities and everything that comes with a restaurant brick and mortar. Uh, so your overhead's a lot lower, so you're kind of able to weather changes a little bit better. And also, everyone's already outside for food carts for the most part. Right. Um, so now that we have outdoor dining again, everyone's kind of back to normal and everything. Uh, so summertime was actually fairly... I don't want to say easy on food carts because that's a very um, that's a disingenuous statement. It was difficult, but they were able to weather it because of their unique traits a little easier than some of the larger restaurants were. Mm. But now that we're in wintertime, we're looking at the same problems that food carts always have in wintertime, which is, you know, you just sell a lot less. You've got less people sitting outside because it's not as nice out. Um, that's, you know, the primary thing. So we're already looking at the problem that food carts face every year, which is just diminished sales the slow and then season. you add on to that all these expensive burglaries um it's you know it's hard and i i think something that kind of gets missed with a lot of this is the psychological impact of burglaries it feels very everyone i've talked to said that they felt very um violated mm-hmm. you know having this place that is really yours and having someone break into it is it's a very demoralizing thing to happen especially on top of all the you know, other things that we've been facing with the pandemic and everything. Right. Well, what will it take for these restaurants to bounce back? Is there, I don't know, is there, what's, what's well, next? Food carts, well, we're probably not going to look at any closures because of these burglaries. That's not really, um, you, you know, it's mostly under $1,000 in damage, which is not, you know, insignificant. It's, it's a lot of money. But, um, again, food carts are poised to be a little bit more, um uh, resilient are poised to be a little bit more resilient, I should say. So I'm, I'm not super concerned about that. It's just the overall look at the picture is really, you know, unfortunate. Well, we'll all stay tuned and, and spend our money where we can when it comes to supporting our, our local restaurants, whether they be a yeah, food, just take a favorite part or... and keep going there. That's really the most uh, helpful thing anyone can do right now. Exactly. So on a lighter note. Holidays, food, big part of the holidays, Hanukkah this mm-hmm. week, uh, Christmas just around the corner. What will festivities during the pandemic be like for the Portland food scene? Well, I will say this. If you are entertaining like one or two people, if you're you know, keeping like a close family meal or something like that, and you don't feel like cooking, I'm pretty certain that the Portland restaurants this year will be able to feed the entire city. I don't think anyone <laughs> actually needs to cook Christmas or Hanukkah dinner if they don't want to. <laughs> There are so many restaurants putting out so many specials this season, more than ever, um, and all of them are, you know, things you can take home and either heat up or they'll be hot or they'll deliver it. There's there's all sorts of options. There's options for, you know, uh, but Hanukkah and Christmas. There are options for all different sites of culinary interests and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I've written a map for either, and I'm already looking at practically doubling it. You've written a map? Restaurants that are, yes. Oh, where can I find that? The PDX Eater, just search for um, Christmas Portland Eater, uh, should be the 
first hit, probably. Okay. Or holidays, even. Because I, I remember last time I talked to you, I was talking about how I got Thanksgiving dinner from Noble Rot. And I'm a cook. I love to cook. But I thought that's the one thing I can do to to, to try to support our, our um, restaurant industry. So you can do the same for Christmas. You can do the same for your... Um, two-person holiday party. It will look different than last year because last year we had, a, um, I, I think especially hotel bars were really popular for Christmas dinner uh, since they were open 365 days out of the year. So there was always buffets at all these different restaurants and everything, especially downtown and the hotels. And uh, most of those are gone now. Or I shouldn't say most of them, but a, you know, a good portion of them are actually just gone. And the other ones, what? Uh, you mean- few of them are open currently. You mean gone, like never opening again? Correct. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> if you look at the Portland hotel uh, dining scene, which, uh, you know, was, was one of the fastest growing restaurant scenes, I believe, in Portland the last few years. I mean, it seems like every month there was a new hotel opening up downtown or being renovated. And, you know, a lot of really uh, well-known Portland chefs were opening restaurants. Uh, in hotels downtown, and uh, for instance, Chef Vitaly Paley, mm-hmm. a very famous Portland luminary chef, really influential, um, famous for Paley's Place, had, I believe, uh, four establishments downtown, um, including Headwaters of the Historic Heathman Hotel, which was a very popular place for Thanksgiving and for Christmas dinner uh, in the last few years, and that is not going to open again. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, and that's he's not the only one to have lost um, hotels downtown, hotel restaurants downtown, but he's certainly one of the larger names who, who had quite a few places that were really well established and very popular, but uh, are probably the most vulnerable to the pandemic. And I'm sorry, you, you said you wanted to get to a cheer, you know, like a more cheerful <laughs> note with this particular well, subject. It, but. You know, in the world that we're living in right now, you, you got to take the good with the bad because there, there's True. there's a lot of tough times out there and we're all trying to look on the bright side, I think, especially in the holiday season. So so with that said, um, do you have any holiday food recommendations to make um, at home or to order as takeout? You know, there are so many. I don't like to be too um, selective when it comes to that. I, don't, I, I try not to play favorites or anything. But, um, yeah, visit our map or I'm, I'm sure the Willamette Week and the Mercury and the Oregonian have their lists up as well. Everyone's trying to support the restaurants that are out here doing this well, and uh i should I, I say assure you that pretty much whatever you pick it's going to be satisfying everyone is really you know all these chefs and cooks and workers are out there really trying to make an amazing dinner for you know for the holidays this year because like you said like you know you have to take the good with the bad right now and i think they're really making a, a really serious effort to try to make this as best as possible given the circumstances so uh, you say your website. So I'm speaking with Alex Frain, again, from PDX Eater, Eater PDX, and the website is pdx.eater, E-A-T-E-R dot com. And you said go on there and search Christmas, and uh, you'll, we'll find a map of um, your recommendations. Well, or uh, not your recommendations, but a map of all the restaurants where you can find takeout or Christmas dinner or just a special dinner. Yep, and that'll be updated later this week as well. And how many re- how many restaurants did you say you have on there? Well, currently I only have thirteen, but we're going to be adding at least another thirteen, if not more. So that's and, and that, a few of those are going to go off. A few of them have sold out. Oh my gosh, really? Already? Yep. So yeah, we got to get on it. Somehow. <laughs> we got to get 
getting on it. Yes, it's it's a good thing to get those earlier than later, especially just because it makes it easier for everyone involved. And yeah. Yes, people do sell out. Yeah, and I I know that that I had to, you have to order usually a few days in advance at least at yep. a minimum. So uh, again, this is a and I'm sure the map probably has places all over town, all different kinds of um, persuasions. Whether you yes, we try to be as uh, diverse as possible with the location and style and price range and everything else. Well, thank you so much, Alex Frain, uh, writer for Eater Portland. More of his reporting on Portland's food scene can be found at pdx.eater.com. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And if thank I don't you. talk to you again, happy holidays. You as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Have a great one. Kira Lindenberg joins X-Ray in the Morning host Christine Alexander to give us some updates and debunk some myths about the new COVID vaccine. Okay, I wanted to talk a little more about vaccines today. So the very first people in the U.S. just got vaccinated, including a doctor. So I figured it was worth talking about. And it's worth talking about because the vaccine does not work unless lots of people get it, which means that we are all tasked with convincing our anti-vaxxer friends and family that they need to take the vaccine. So let's talk about why. Uh, so yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine who is very uh, compromised immune system. He's actually lacking the uh, cell that makes antibodies. So he can't catch this disease. Like he can't get vaccinated. He can't catch this disease. He's very vulnerable. Mm. And then I started thinking about other people that were vulnerable and I, I looked it up and there's a lot of people that cannot take this vaccine or are being advised not to. Um, people with HIV, anyone who's had an organ transplant, um, children, every single child under the age of 16 years old, which is a huge portion of our population, cannot get the vaccine. Oh my gosh, uh, I didn't know that. Well, it's because it hasn't been tested. I think at some point oh. they will probably do a clinical trial and, and find out if it's safe. But right now, if you're under 16, you cannot get the vaccine. So um, a lot of pregnant women, especially ones with complications already, uh, people who have any allergies to any of the vaccine ingredients. And at the moment, there's some back and forth, but it, it may be that anyone who's ever had an anaphylactic reaction to any food or medicine cannot get the vaccine or is being advised not to get it which means i'm out which sucks uh, for me oh my gosh <laughs> so. that, you just told me something i didn't know that means i'm out too i have had an anaphylactic re reaction and went uh, to the hospital yeah oh my gosh yeah Save. can i can i ask what it was too? well i was undergoing um allergy shots i have terrible oh. allergies you might hear sometimes i'm more nasal than others it's because I have really, I'm my doc, my allergy doctor said I am the most allergic person she has ever, patient she has ever had. So your I am, doctor said my that? doctor cow. after testing me, she said that when she looked at my results. So basically, I'm allergic to everything except for foods, but environmentally, <laughs> environmentally, right. I'm allergic to everything. So I started undergoing allergy shots about two years ago, and you start out going once a week, and then every two weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, it, uh, last January, I got my allergy shot, and you have to stay there for half an hour after mm -hmm. you get your shot to make sure. And sure enough, within 30 seconds of getting my, I sat down in the waiting room, and Whoa. my throat started to close up. And I started to feel flushed and dizzy. And I looked up at the receptionist, and I said, I think something's wrong. 
they, oh my gosh. So they took me back into the, the thing and, and it was my blood pressure got up to one ninety five. Um cow. they had to give me an EpiPen twice. And then oh my I, gosh. and then I was taken by ambulance to the hospital. And my doctor, my allergy doctor said that I had an ear infection. And so my immune system was down and when they gave me the allergy shot, all that stuff I was allergic to it sent me right into anaphylactic shock. Wow. So I guess I can't get the vaccine either. Well, the CDC is out on it right now because essentially what happened is in the UK, there were two nurses who had a history of having anaphylaxis. And when they got the vaccine, both of them went into anaphylaxis. Whoa. And so, yeah. It's and scary. so, I mean, it is. It, yeah, yes, I concur. It's very scary. Um, yeah, so uh, especially because yours was the result of a medication, mm -hmm. it's, it's very possible that you won't be eligible. So we're talking like a huge part of the population, right? It's right. a lot of, it's a lot of vulnerable people that won't be able to get the vaccine. Um, yeah, and so, and, and on top of that, even if you can get the vaccine, that does not necessarily mean that you are immune do you know that do people no, know that no what to explain that to me i'm not sure what do you mean by, what do you mean if i get the vaccine i'm not immune okay so possibly i don't i don't understand why this is i i think maybe this isn't talked about more because doctors don't want to scare people out of taking vaccines more than they already are um but yeah getting a vaccine does not mean that you're immune to covid what it means is all right look if a hundred people who let's say you know before the vaccine, if those 100 people were going to get COVID and they were all people that were going to get really sick, right? Let's say you vaccinate those 100 people. What it means is that we predict 90 of those people are either with the vaccine, either not going to catch COVID or they're going to catch it in a way that um, doesn't make them super sick. They could still have it. They just could, they will be showing symptoms. Uh -huh. 10 of those people that got the vaccine are still going to get severely ill. Oh, so that's like the flu. Getting the flu shot doesn't guarantee you won't get the flu because it, it, that's about strains. But this is when they talked about in the news where it was 90% effective or 95% yes. effective. Okay, I get it. Yeah, get it. right. So it's it's kind of a, it's just like anything else in life. It's like, because what the vaccine is doing is it's teaching your immune system to make the particular antibody that would kill the COVID vaccine, right? So it, just like if you were teaching let's say if you had a classroom full of kids and you were like i'm teaching them how to read or whatever that's not a guarantee that 100 percent of those students are going to leave the classroom being like i know how to read now like some of them will and some of them won't and mm. it's it's just kind of up to you know the combination of like your immune system and the vaccine how well do they co-mingle um so so it's really 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 important that everybody gets the vaccine that's that's eligible because what that means is <sighs> okay so they don't know because of the clinical trial like they know that some people that got the vaccine still got sick what they don't they were only able they didn't like test everybody and and also sometimes if you have covid and you don't have symptoms and you take a test sometimes the test is going to turn out negative because there's just you don't have enough copies for the test to pick up. That doesn't mean you don't have it. It just means that you're not showing symptoms and you're not spreading it all over the place. So like that might be what happens when you get the vaccine is that when you do contract COVID, your body is like, oh, wait a second, we know how to fight this. 
doesn't mean you're not ever going to make any copies of the virus, doesn't mean you're not able to spread it. It just means that you're going to make way less copies because your immune system is like pre-set, right? Like it's primed. like, yeah, it's primed. Thank you. So that being said, our real defense, like if, if you get the vaccine, that doesn't mean, again, go run the halls of Costco because it does not mean that don't, you're immune. Don't go coughing on everybody. Don't go coughing on everybody and don't go having people cough on you. But if everybody gets the vaccine, that means that we're we're all creating less copies of it and we're passing on less copies. And as we know by now, the viral load, how many copies of the virus somebody coughs onto you has a ton to do with whether or not you're going to catch this virus. Wow. So, now, uh, well, so Kira, so I get why I need to get it. What about, can you... You mentioned you were going to dispel some myths about vaccines, and the, some of these are pretty big that we've heard a lot about over the years. Can you, can you, sort of break it down what what some of these myths are and why they're myths, why they're not true? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, what myths have you heard? Vaccine cause autism. Yeah, they just don't. <laughs> It's just pretty simple, huh? They just don't. Just don't. <laughs> um, there has never, ever been a serious medical study that has ever found a causal relationship between vaccines and autism. Um, one of the biggest studies ever done in 2015, they studied 95,000 children and determined that there was no correlation between autism and uh, and vaccines. It's also worth mentioning that the doctor that put forth this hypothesis, I think it was like back in 1991, um, he lost his medical license. And regardless of what anti-vaxxers like to say, it is not because the government was trying to keep some conspiracy under, why, why, why would the government do that? Like they're giving you vaccines, doctors are giving you vaccines to keep you safe. Like why would they bother making this whole huge grand conspiracy about like not letting you know that it causes autism? He lost his medical license because he was a shoddy scientist that did shoddy science. Like, mm. <laughs> just end of story. There's no correlation. There's no correlation. Well, good. What about the idea that um, vaccines are full of toxins like formaldehyde and mercury? They are. They are. Uh, there is formaldehyde in vaccines. It's such a small amount of formaldehyde and they, they usually uh, are around as like preservatives to keep because the things that are in vaccine are very delicate they break down really easily um the amount of formaldehyde that's in vaccines is less than your body makes naturally mm. so not a big deal um and same thing with mercury like you're gonna get exposed to more mercury by eating fish and shellfish so if you really care that much like you're better off getting a vaccine and just like not eating shrimp. Okay. Oh man, come on. <laughs> but also, I love my shrimp. Like the amount of mercury, not a big deal. I love my shrimps. Okay. Well, um, what about um, a herd immunity will keep us safe? This whole idea of her- herd immunity. What? 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 What's the true scoop on that, Kira? Uh, well, and herd immunity is probably something that you've heard a lot of Republicans talk about, you know, if they don't want the vaccine because they're like, well, eventually we'll just have herd immunity. Um, Humans have never achieved herd immunity for any disease except in the presence of the vaccine. Um, Yeah, that's, I don't understand why more, why that's not talked about. Wow, yeah. Um, 
and it's also eventually diseases might die out. It's not necessarily because people become immune. It's just because so many people die and, and eventually viruses kind of lose their potency. Um, but you want to talk about that when that happens, like in historical plagues, it takes like decades. So if you would like millions of people to die for like the next 20 years and sure. Yeah. Let's wait for herd immunity. Uh. No, thanks. Like, <laughs> in order to achieve it in the U.S., we'd have to have around 70% of people, which, ugh, the whole thing's so stupid. Vaccines also mutate. So even if 70% of people in the U.S. caught COVID, which you're talking about, like, bare minimum 4 million people dying, the vaccine can still mutate. So you'd have to get herd immunity all over again next year. Okay. So no on the herd immunity. Last but not least... Uh, the vaccine contains Bill Gates microchips and or possibly Satan's DNA. I, that, that's probably true. I don't know. <laughs> I, <can't. laughs> I don't know. I have no way to dispute either of those things. So, On that expert scientific note, we are going to take a break. Uh, and Kira, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for joining me on News with My Friends. And thank you for... Um, thank you for clearing up all that vaccine business. So we all yes. know now <laughs> go get the vaccine when, when you get your opportunity. That's for the good of you and for the good of everyone around you. Please protect your pregnant friends. That's what I always say. Right on. Thanks, yeah. Kira. Yeah, thank you, Christine. Thanks to Alex, Kira, and Christine for joining the local. And thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.